I mean, of course, much of what people told me, much of what came back was awful, was like really disturbing and appalling, abusive. But then there was a piece of what came back, particularly from people who I actually quite respect about kind of like, here's why I can't forgive. Here's why I'm not ready to, to forgive. And I think some of that was about, you know, I'm worried this is going to happen again. Emily Oster is an economics professor at Brown University, and she's the author of two best-selling books about parenting, Expecting Better and Crib Sheet, both of which take a data-informed approach to pregnancy and parenting young children. She's also the author of a really widely loved newsletter called Parent Data. It has more than 160,000 subscribers. It's a phenomenon in its own right. In this conversation, Emily and I discuss the wild reactions that she got in response to a series of Atlantic articles about the pandemic. She wrote about school closures and about the various risks for children versus older people and about how to move on and solve problems instead of litigating old fights. And she endured hell for it, especially on social media, especially on Twitter. So we talk about what that experience was like and we talk about academia and what her colleagues think of her various media exploits. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie. And here is Emily Oster. Emily Oster, thanks so much for coming on The Advocate Voice. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me. Why did you become an economist? Well, one thing that's useful to note probably is that my parents were economists. And so I was aware that that was a job. And so sometimes people don't know that being an economics professor is a job, but I was definitely aware of that. But for a long time, I thought I wouldn't be an economist because you don't necessarily want to do the things that, that your parents like. But You didn't do a very good job of rebelling. No. I did not. I mean, I didn't ever do a good job of rebelling. But, you know, I really love economics, but I sort of more than that, I really love research. And I really love the idea of learning things that other people don't know. And the moment in the research where you know something and no one else does has always been very exciting. Uh, and, you know, over time, I sort of thought I would do science. I thought I, I thought I would do research in some other space. And uh, over time, sort of economics kind of drew me in because I like the questions. I like the tools. And I don't know. It just happened. So you've got quite a sciencey brain, but you also have a writerly brain. You've written a, uh, some best-selling books. You've got an amazing Substack. You have um, done TED talks. You've done you've got you've done all the good things that good writers can do. So was this an interest you have been cultivating for a long time? Did you always want to be a writer as well? Yes. So I, as a young kid, I wanted to be a writer. Like I wanted to write books. And um, that was like, I thought I would like be a writer or write short stories or books or whatever. Or whatever. And I, I really liked to write. I really like the challenge of writing and, and I don't find it that hard. Sometimes it's hard, but most of the time it's not it's not so hard. When you introduce yourself at dinner parties, do you say, I'm an economist, I'm a writer? It's, a, it's an extremely interesting and evolving question. Mm. I would say until pretty recently, I would have said I'm an economist. And now sometimes I say I'm a writer. Um, you should say, I'm Emily Oster, best-selling right. author. I don't say that um, because then you don't get invited back <laughs> to the next dinner party. Use it selectively. Uh, yeah. Use it selectively, exactly. So I would say, like, depending on the company, I'm sometimes I'll just say I'm an economist and a writer. You were doing a bunch of interesting work before Expecting Better came out, which really exploded you onto the scene for many people. Well, maybe it's because I was becoming a parent around the time that that book emerged. But... That changed the scale of which you're known and talked about. Already, though, you had established a, a, a reputation as a world-class economist. You'd done some interesting work on, uh, like, the birth rates in the mix of uh, boys versus girls in China and some sure. HIV yeah. stuff. What was that moment like when going from, you know, known well in your field 
you've already done a TED talk and then expecting better came out and it seems like there was a, a, a big step change in your public known, knownness. <laughs> so it's interesting. I don't perceive it that way. Um, so in part because this was actually quite slow. So Expecting Better came out in 2013. And, you know, that was now like a decade ago. And it was like moderately successful. My agent described the book as selling okay well uh, when we when we talked about it. And it has sort of grown over time. So so in the last year, the book sold maybe 20 times what it did in the first year of publication, which is like somewhat an unusual path for a book, for a nonfiction book. And that is just sort of like there's gotten to be more of it over over time. And so initially it didn't feel very different. You know, I, I wrote this book. Some people read it. Some people didn't. And I sort of went back to my professor job. And it was only kind of really with the with the second book, uh, with Cribshe, which came out in 2019, that things sort of shifted in my professional life in terms of the balance of what I was mm-hmm. doing. And that's been you know even more true with the with the Substack. So it's sort of like incremental. I think if I had you'd asked me 10 years ago when I wrote Expecting Better, like, is this where you're going to be now? I would not have predicted that. Yeah. Did you write that book thinking I'm going to make a big impact with this book? I don't know. Like, I wrote that book because I thought I had to. Like, and I don't, it's hard to explain that. Like, I, I just, I was pregnant and I was so frustrated and it just sort of like, it just like vomited out. You know, it's like, I just felt like it was something that had to be in the world. And I'm not sure, in fact, I'm sure I did not give very much thought to like, either what exactly will this do to me professionally or like, where will this end up? Like, what is the... What is going to happen with this book? It just is a book I thought should be there. Why is it so big all of a sudden? I think, I, I don't know. I mean, book sales, are, book sales are hard to predict. I think that there is something about this data approach and the idea that, you know, you could be the shepherd of your own experience, that, you know, you can understand what is happening to you and you can have con- control over that to some extent and at least engage with it. In a in a more meaningful way, I think that that turned out to be a really resonant message. I think what happened with the book just practically is people read it and they liked it, and then they they told their friends, and you know that's how exponential growth works. What's that feeling like for you, having written that book, having put it out into the world, and you probably feel like it's sort of it's had its dash, it's, it's selling fine, it's selling well, but it's not a runaway. And then over time, it like picks up momentum, and like I mean, you've become known for many things uh, since that well known. But then you became really known as like the economist who has this sensible approach to the cautious things you meant to do in your pregnancy. So I think the the moment that was sort of the the oddest and the kind of sharpest was we were in the car. So this is like January of 2019, I guess. And we're like in the car and Crib Sheet is like was going to come out in April. And so it's like my second book. And we were in California for some reason for like two weeks. And we came back and I just like remember being in the car and opening up my phone. And I opened up Instagram, which now I spend a lot of time on. But at the time, I did not spend a lot of time on. And I opened up Instagram and I can see that someone has posted mm. that like an image of expecting better. And like, you know, this book is great. And then I see that that person is Amy Schumer. Mm. And that was like a like that was sort of a it's moment massive. where I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, my goodness. Like and that really drove a lot of really drove a lot of sales, both of Expecting Better and the later of, of Crib Sheet. Mm-hmm. And she was extremely supportive and I'm and I'm very grateful. But I think that was a sort of moment where it's like, oh, this is like in sort of in the zeitgeist in a way that it hasn't been before. And like maybe now this is going to be a bigger part of of sort of who I am and what I'm putting out in the world than it has been. 
And now that it exists in the world, it's very well known. It seems obvious that this book should exist. It should have been written. This seems like, it, are you surprised that this is a space that was just waiting to be taken? Yes, I totally agree. I mean, I like it's, you know, people, sometimes people are like, why were you the one who wrote that book? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It's like nobody else did it. You know, it's like, I mean, in some sense, like, I don't know. I just hang out there first. But I think that there was... I think it seems more obvious now, partly because I think this idea of using data and evidence has become like a bigger piece of how we think about the world in the last decade, a decade ago, that was there, but maybe to to sort of somewhat lesser extent. And so maybe this was like not as obvious. But yes, I mean, I frequently think like, I don't know why this wasn't there, but that's what I thought at the time. That's why I did it. I was like, I don't understand. Why are all these other books around that I don't like? And so why did you do Crip Sheet? Because at that point, it sounds like you had decided to recommit to that book before the big ramp in sales for Expecting Better happened. What I'm saying is that it wasn't necessarily that the uh, Expecting Better was already a runaway smash hit and that your publishers were banging down your door saying, you got to give us number two. I, mean, I think one answer is like I had had a second kid and I felt much more equipped to write a second, write this book about early parenting after having done it with a second kid partly because having multiple children with the second one, you don't have as much time to obsess about all the like crazy tiny stuff. And so some of the point of that book is like, here are the things you should actually sort of think carefully about. And most of the rest of it, you can just kind of like ignore. But the sort of other perhaps more pedantic answer is that my agent told me like, either you write this, like your kids are getting too old, either you write this book now or you're not going to write it at all. Because you're going to age out. Age yeah, out. you're like age out of it. I mean, she took me to lunch somewhere and she was like, you're going to age out of this. Like you're going to, you're getting, your kids are getting old. You're getting old. You want to do this or not? And I was like, okay. Suzanne's very persuasive. <laughs> are you grateful that she did that? Totally. I mean, it is. She was obviously, she was obviously correct. Um, but So what's your relationship like with social media? Because you said you didn't used to use Instagram. Uh, now you do use it a lot. You're on Substack, which I guess you could say is a, a form of social media. I think it, it must have played a huge role in helping the, these books do so well. Amy Schumer's on there and talking it up on Instagram. But there's other side, negative sides of social media, which I'm sure we can uh, get into. But are you grateful for it? Or are you, um, do you have more complicated feelings? On net, yes. I am grateful. I think it's been enormously influential in getting the messages that I want out into the world. You know, at the same time, like it is not uncomplicated. And I think, you know, particularly in the space that that I'm in where I'm I'm sort of simultaneously kind of trying to talk about ideas and trying to get sort of ideas out in the world and also very much doing that as me, very much doing that as like an individual person. There is then a lot of the feedback comes about your person yeah. in a way that is different than feedback would come about the work. And I think that that tension, um, you know, at, I mean, at some times has been sort of totally overwhelming. There's certainly been moments, particularly in the last couple of years, in which the like sort of blowback on social media has just been like overwhelmingly terrible. Um, and then other moments where it's like, wow, this is a really great opportunity to connect to people. And I really, you know, I'm getting like I'm getting a lot out of out of this kind of exposure. Yeah. And I want to talk about some of like, what what were the things that precipitated the, t the terrible experiences on social media? If you're comfortable enough. Sounds to, like a great time. We're going awesome. to have a party in here. But I'm also kind of wondering like the work that you do, how conducive is social media to this quite challenging project of translating data and science into novel stories and those stories being able to be easily understood by people? Because 
what I'm getting at here is social media seems to like, it likes sound bites. It encourages people to jump to quick and easy conclusions. But the work that you're doing is trying to do the opposite. Yeah. And I think that is a tension that we struggle with probably once a week, at least um, in the parent data space. And so I think part of what I have liked, not to like blow smoke up here, but, you know, but like, part of what I have liked about Substack is it, that it is an opportunity to be very deep in, you know, the things that I talk about. And so a lot of what I do in the in the newsletters I talk about, you know, here's this study, like, let me like really dive into it. And like, let me tell you, like, what's in table two and why like table two is super important to understand why this study is like garbage. <laughs> and, you know, that's not like social media does not reward like table two right. ana- analyses. And so I think we think a lot there, but but at the same time, you know, just sort of ignore that and say like, okay, you know, we don't want to pay any attention to social media because like that would also be a mistake. It's not going to get the message out. And so I think we think a lot about like, what is a, what is a way to, to sort of encourage people to try to go deeper while delivering a sort of accurate, if inevitably like less complete message in these sort of shorter spaces. And I think that's, that's, I don't know, it's a, it's, sometimes it works better than others. How do you use Instagram and Twitter to really listening stand, I guess? I'd say Instagram has two functions. So one is to, you know, drive people to other content and, you know, show them a, a hint, you know, here's a graph of how often people have sex. Like, you want to hear more about people's sex lives? Like, go read, read more about it here. No one will click uh, on that. No, this is, nobody cares about that. And then the other thing that I think is really, really valuable is this sort of immediate connection with people. So there are a lot of, ways on Instagram that I kind of reach people in like what seem like sort of quite personal ways. And I think that that's that's something that's really valuable about that medium that is that is hard to replicate in other than in other places. Mm-hmm. Why do you use Twitter? I don't use Twitter that much anymore. I mean, I use Twitter to we post the newsletters on Twitter in the hopes that people will go look at them. Yeah. OK, let's talk about the fun stuff. OK. The pandemic was a big moment for you mm. in terms of breaking into the public consciousness even further. And it's because from where I was sitting, you took stances that didn't adhere to particular tribal stories. And one of them was, uh, well, maybe we should think about keeping the schools open. Uh, let's just use that as an example, because that was one of, the, one of the pieces. And you're writing in The Atlantic, I think, some of the time, mm. some of the time in your newsletter. What gave you the courage to take a stance like that? I think that stance in particular was very important. I think at the time, kids were not at school. I think that we were starting to get good evidence that, you know, schools were not places of, of super spread, of, of, you know, significant COVID risk. And and more than that, I think it was becoming obvious in the things I was hearing and the things that I was seeing and the data that was coming out and things people were writing that, like, this was not good for our kids. Like, being at home and, like, isolated from people was not healthy for kids. And it was and it was also like tremendously unfair. You know, if you sort of think about the, the landscape of a lot of fall 2020, there were many places and this was true for that whole school year. Many places where people were going to bars and the casinos and the kids weren't going to school. And the whole thing sort of felt like basically we are failing kids. And, and I was in a position because of the audience, because of the newsletter, because of the data that we were collecting to say something about that. And it was important to say that. And many other people didn't say that. That's true. Why the hell not? I think there are a few things. So one is I think there was a period in kind of summer of 2020 when there was, I think, some genuine disagreement among, you know, pretty well-meaning people about whether schools were going to be sources of significant spread or not. 
And so this is part of what motivated some of the sort of data collection that we that we kind of scaffolded to try to learn about this. You know, so I think that was kind of one piece of it. Then I think we got into the fall of 2020 and it really started to become clear. I mean, I understand that, you know, people out in the world would say, well, you couldn't have known for sure. And that's true. But I think it started to become clear that like this was these were not locations of significant spread in that in that fall. They just they just weren't. There were so many pieces of data to triangulate from Europe, from places that were open. It just be, was becoming clear. And then I think at that point, there's a more legitimate question of, you know, sort of why did things not shift more dramatically? And I think, you know, there were like a, a bunch of factors and there were, you know, embedded constituencies that I think did not want to make those kind of changes. And I don't know, it was hard. There are other countries that, that keep the schools open, right? And like the UK, oh, I think the schools are open. All, almost all the other ones, yeah. Yeah. So it's very interesting that this was some, something that was not allowed to be talked about here. I mean, I think the other thing that happened that's, you know, I don't think is a is not a positive explanation, but it's certainly something that that went on, is that in the sort of like maybe June of 2020, so after kids had kind of been out for this three months, everything was closed. I think there was this impetus at that moment for everyone to be like, you know, we got to get it together and like get schools back open because this this spring was like not good. People didn't learn anything. Zoom was garbage for school. Like, let's, you know, try to get together. Then there was a period in the summer in like sort of July in which in which Trump said, you know, we should open the schools and kind of let's like not worry too much about what we're what we're doing about that. And I think that turned out to be a point that kind of bifurcated people's mm. experiences. And then you got a bunch of places that said, you know, yeah, we're going to open with like no precautions and we're just going to kind of like do it. And then you got a bunch of places that said, you know, forget it. We're not going to we're not going to open. It became a sort of are you with them or against him kind of political move, which then made it very difficult to to do the work that was going to be necessary to make people comfortable with the return and sort of comfortable with that, with those changes. Did you know that it was going to provoke a strong response? I think that I had some sense that that would provoke a strong response. I mean, there are many things that I do that I don't expect to provoke a strong response. I think that, you know, writing an Atlantic article with the title Schools Aren't Super Spreaders in like, you know, October of 2020. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an idiot. Like I I understood that some people would be unhappy with that, mm-hmm. with that point. But you weren't seeking to provoke that response, although some of some people who did respond angrily probably thought you were. No, I was absolutely not. I was I was seeking to the, provoke the response of opening schools. Like, and I think, you know, to some extent, some of that work did assist with opening schools. And one of the things I've said, people said, you know, well, that's, a, you got a lot of pushback for that. People were really mean to you. Like, da, da, da. like, do you wish that you hadn't done that? And the answer is like, absolutely not. If a bunch of kids, any kids got to go to school and the cost of that is like people yelled at me on Twitter. Yeah. It's okay. Like I, that's totally a great trade. So where did you get the blowback? Was it mostly Twitter? I had a lot on Twitter for like for that. I got yeah. I think that Twitter was sort of a, a a kind of hotbed of of blowback for that. And then there's been sort of subsequent. You know, people have written like five thousand word articles about how like it's my fault that schools opened. I wish it were my fault. Yeah. <laughs> like it was like more fault. I would like more fault. Yeah. Um, but you know, sort of the, like there's some more of that. But I think Twitter was a kind of organizing structure for a lot of this. And what was it like to? Uh, and this is just one of the go rounds I know. But what was it like to be subject to that kind of to the attacks. Well, no one likes to be yelled at, Hamish. I mean, I don't like to be yelled at any more than anyone else. I think that there's a, like, around this time at some point, I think I was, like, run, like taking a run with my daughter, and I was explaining, like, people were yelling at me. And she was like... How, how old is she? She was, at the time, I guess, like, 10. Okay. And she was like, do you have to read that? Mm. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't have to read that. Um, and so, you know... I think part of it is like you try not to read the comments, but it's like it's hard not to. Why is that hard for you? 
Ah, it's like the same reason it's hard not to read the the comments on your like teaching evaluation, like the negative comments on your teaching evaluations. Glennon Doyle had a really good podcast about this a couple of weeks ago about like sort of taking criticism. And, and part of it was like, it's just hard not to look at it. And sort of it's hard not to, it's just hard not to absorb that. What got you through it? I'm not as smart as my daughter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, part, you know, the, like for me, the the saving grace of this whole period of the pandemic was, you know, number one, like believing that what I was doing was good was like moving in a good direction and was like quality work that was important to do. And then I think the the other thing is like, my family's really great. And my husband is like not on social media. Wow. And and more than like not being on social media, he like doesn't understand. Like he can't find things. You'd be like, somebody said something really mean. He'd be like, I tried to find that, but like, I don't know. It won't let me in. My husband like, loves economics and he doesn't care about this. And so it's to have someone who's just like, wow, like that, not like, well, who cares? Like, I, you know, I mean, of course he cares that I feel bad, but he's not interested in like engaging on how that's going because he can't understand it. And I think that's like very protective. How did it make you feel for other people who have been subjected to this kind of treatment on social media when they're trying to say true things or what they believe or, you know, how much empathy did you have? To yeah, I mean, I have, I, have, I have empathy for this. I mean, I think that, you know, part of it is like to continually subject yourself to this is hard. And so, you know, part I think the other is like sort of slightly protective thing. The reason why I've like done the, we went through like more than one go around on this and in during the pandemic is I forget really fast. Like I feel very bad in the moment. And then, like a couple of weeks later, I'm like, "Oh, that wasn't so bad." Uh, and, I was, and you know, my family's like, "It did seem bad. Yeah. <laughs> you seemed upset." But you know, I think I just like I kind of forget, and I think you sort of need that some version, some kind of thickened skin. And whether it's like your skin is thin, but you know, you forget quickly, or you know, you just like David Leonhardt got a lot of the same kinds of pushback that I did during the pandemic. And like David's approach to social media, as far as I can tell, is like he posts what he does. He'll be like, here is my article, like tweet thread. And then he just never looks at it again. Mm-hmm. And I think he never looks at the comments and he never responds to the comments. And he's mm-hmm. like, that's his, you know, that's his approach. And I think that's um, not the approach that I have taken. But I think it's a it's a good one if you can do it. What effect does this kind of thing have on discourse, in your opinion? Because there must be people for whom that that kind of experience is so traumatizing that they don't go out again and say things that they otherwise would have said or that they feel are important. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are a huge number of people during the pandemic on Twitter who eventually were just like, I'm out. Particularly in the sort of like, sort of, I mean, these are the people I know the best sort of like the kind of middle of the road sort of public messaging, public health messaging. Mm. People who just eventually were like, I can't, ha- like, I can't handle the blowback from from both, you know, from both sides. I mean, um, you know, Megan Rainey, who's like one of my co- colleagues at Brown and, you know, sort of, she and I are not like exactly politically loved, but kind of in the same sort of slightly centrist space. And I think we both find that like, there are a lot of things we do, you get like pushback from both sides. And it's just hard. It's hard to keep coming back for that. And I think many people just left and then you're sort of left with them with some oddly selected set of voices who are both very extreme, but then also like very willing to just not listen to other people, which. Yeah. Nightmare. Probably not good. (laughs) Probably not good. Probably it's not a great selection. Yeah. Hopefully they know go on to run countries or anything. Right, no, that's it. <laughs> well, do you, what do you think about Twitter's power over discourse and over how big decisions are made or in, at important institutions like government or in the media or in academia? Given your experience with it, do you see it as growing or waning or staying the same? 
It, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think for me, like when I was posting, when I was doing more things on Twitter, it was easier to see it as like important because I had a better sense of what was going on. We sort of, I sort of dialed down. At, at some point, I just dialed down engagement, partly because the pandemic was sort of waning and partly because it just became like too difficult ultimately. And then I pay less attention. There was another go around in the Twitter circus with your story in the Atlantic sort of suggesting maybe we could consider an amnesty. Ooh. Ugh. on COVID and that Demic amnesty. the sides could forgive each other a little bit or, you know, mm-hmm. move on, just look forward rather than relitigating yeah. past tribal wars. Were you expecting a big response to that one? That one was surprising. So it's interesting because I wrote, so I wrote that piece because we were having a lot of conversations about test scores. So I like, this is sort of very in the weeds, but I spent a bunch of time, you know, during the pandemic on school stuff. And one piece of what we had done was look at the relationship between school opening patterns and and state test scores at like the end of this sort of first pandemic school year. And, you know, one of the things that came out of that was like schools that were closed more had more test score declines. And that's like not very surprising, but that was true in the data. Then we sort of fast forwarded to like whenever this, like you know, November 2022, and we sort of got some different test score data. And it, it re-upped this discussion about like how big a deal were, were school closures. And one of the things that started happening in that debate was sort of one side was saying like, well, it's, you know, this is like, the, this is your fault. The sort of right, the kind of school opening people are saying, this is your fault, like school closure people. This is your fault that like kids are doing terribly. And then we were getting sort of the school closure people being like, well, actually school closures were not that big a deal. Like this isn't, you know, this isn't our fault. And I, I had the sense at that point that what was happening in that debate was because we had sort of decided to like use this opportunity to relitigate the the past and, you know, whose fault was it, we were losing the opportunity to look forward and to say, look, who, you know what? Here's the thing. The test scores are really, really, really bad. And so I don't, you know, whoever's fault it is, this sounds really important. Like we need to invest in kind of like moving forward. And it seemed to me like one way to consider doing that is to say, like, let's stop talking about what happened in the past. Let's sort of like give some amnesty for the fact that like different choices were made. And it's in many cases, those choices were made in a kind of state of some ignorance, potentially by people who were very well-meaning, who like, you know, maybe had different views about how to read the data. So that was why I wrote that piece. I thought, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to kind of push that conversation. And I did expect some pushback. I expected some pushback from the left. So I expected some people to say, like, you know, we, we're, I don't want to forgive the people who, you know, didn't like lockdowns and the people who, like, I'm not going to forgive Ron DeSantis. You know, he's like, the, the you know, Satan or whatever. Like, I just expected that pushback. And sure enough, I got pushback. The thing that was surprising was it was almost entirely the other direction. Yeah. And I, I just hadn't, I kind of, I think I hadn't understood enough. I hadn't thought as much about how much anger there was on that side. Yeah. Did it make you look deeper into why people have that anger? Yes. It was an interesting experience because it was like one of the first times in this when I really... I mean, of course, much of what people told me, much of what came back was awful, was like really disturbing and appalling, abusive. Mm. But then there was a piece of what came back, particularly from people who I actually quite respect about kind of like, here's why I can't forgive. Mm-hmm. Here's why I'm not ready to to forgive. And I think some of that was about, you know, I'm worried this is going to happen again. Some of it was, you know, this is still happening. Like, you know, my school is still closed in these various ways. And, you know, this is still... This is sort of some of that. But I think a lot of it was just a feeling of like almost being like treated like a crazy subhuman. And then somehow like that was very hard to forgive. And I sort of, you know, I've reflected some on that. I'm not sure how how much I would have written it differently. I actually I do think that the message is important and it is important for, for moving forward. But 
it was meaningful to hear some of that come back. Right. You're getting to occupy a position that not many people are willing to even try and occupy there, which is to see humans on both sides. of Like, even at the extremes, these are humans with human responses so, and human emotions. Yeah, the thing that was, like, in some ways incredibly sad about that was rea- that reaction was I would get the email, so many emails, and they were all very mean, most of them. And sometimes I would start reading and I would just think, I don't even know which side you're on. Like, this is, this is exactly, like, this, the email's like, it's, you know, I, how can I forgive these people for all of the, you know, all of the deaths and all of the, like, ways in which my life was affected and all of the things that are bad? And the next email would be like, how can I forgive the people for all the deaths and all life is affected and all of the things? And one of them was from someone whose view was like, the lockdowns are, it, you know, falls for this. And like, my family doesn't speak to me anymore because I won't get vaccinated. And the other one was from, you know, my, you know, my grandmother died of COVID. And like, if only so it's just like, somehow, I almost want to be like, look, you're all like, everyone is so wounded by this. And somehow they're all just blaming the other people. I mean, it sort of underscored why I thought amnesty. maybe it was like too soon. Well, it's too soon. Yeah. When is it not going to be too soon? I don't know. That was like the third and kind of a series of three pieces, which got various pushback during the pandemic. So one was the schools aren't super spreaders. One was this thing about sort of the relative risk of kids versus older people uh, from serious illness sort of post post vaccine. And then there was there was this piece. And for both of the first two, there was a point, you know, like eight months later when everyone was like, yeah, OK, schools aren't super spreaders or, you know, yeah, OK, like actually it turns out kids are at like way lower risk than, you know, like actually we really should be very concerned about older people and less concerned about about kids. So I was telling my college roommate about this and she was like, you've pioneered a new way of being wrong, which is being right, but like eight months too early. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I don't know. I guess we're waiting like eight months or people. Going through these experiences, does it make you less or more likely to be the person who speaks out when you feel there's something important to say, but knowing that there's going to be a tremendously hot response? I think it makes me more prepared and probably more thoughtful about the the places that I use my voice. And that's partly because the platform is bigger. You know, when I like in... Three years ago, my platform was much smaller than it is now. And with that comes responsibility and comes a responsibility for sort of thinking about what you're going to what you're going to say. On the other hand, having lived through these things and sort of knowing, okay, like one can come out on the other side. I think if there's something that's important, I'm going to say it. Good. 20 years from now, looking back at the pandemic, let's just look at the discourse slice of it and what happened in the discourse. What do you think will be the economist's assessment of what happened there? There were so many mistakes. You know, I think there was a a very big failure in public health messaging, which I and I think this is something that even now people would sort of pretty widely agree with, that we didn't do enough to explain to people why we were sending the messages we were sending. And that led to a lot of distrust and led to a lot of like discomfort um, with what people were being told. And that if you had sort of had it to do over again, it would have been better to say more about why you were uncertain. So an analogy someone gave, which I thought was very useful, is to the way that we talk about like predicting fires. So if there's like a wildfire. Every day, the person who's in charge of the wildfire like stands up in front of, you know, the news media and they say, you know, here's where the fire is now. Here's where it is. And like, here's, here's, you know, here's where we expect it to be tomorrow. Like, and we don't exactly know, but like, this is what we expect. And I'm going to come back tomorrow. And I'm going to tell you like what we've learned. During the pandemic, instead of saying, you know, here's where it is now, here's where our understanding of vaccines is now, you know, here's what we think happens with transmission, but we're still learning about that. And when we come back tomorrow, and I'm going to tell you what we've learned about this and here are the ways we're trying to learn. Instead of doing that, we, you know, one moment we're like, vaccines are like a titanium shield and they, you, no one can transmit to anyone with a vaccine. 
And, and, don't, and don't touch your face. <laughs> don't touch your face. And then, you know, we were like, and then it's like, well, just kidding. Actually, it, it, it's not that. It's this other thing. And do, do <laughs> you know, and so, and people were like, but you you were so sure before. And you're like, I'm sure now. Yeah. And if we had just said, you know, I'm not sure. Here's how we're learning. I think that that, that, that was a failure in how we did the public health messaging. I think that's a long-term, that's sort of a long-term learning. Was it worth it? Has it been worth it? Taking all that heat, like finding out that, people are ready to say mean things so easily about you. Totally. I mean, I think it was, I on net, the good for me has outweighed the bad. And, and that good comes, you know, partly in sort of having influence in spaces that I think, where I think the work that I did was valuable. It comes in partly in like helping people, you know, particularly early in the pandemic. I was sending out this newsletter. I was sending it to like a lot of new parents. There were a lot of people who were like having babies, like in, you know, May of 2020 or April of, of 2020, and they weren't seeing anybody. And I was sending this newsletter, a lot of which was about, you know, here's what's going on with the pandemic and here's how you can think about childcare and here, you know, here's like a decision framework for things. And when I talk to people now who were sort of reading what I was writing at that time, you know, they'll tell me things like, I know you're my friend because like every two days you emailed me to like tell me, you know, there was sort of a connection that was forged there that I think helped people in a time that was really hard. And I'm really proud that I got to do that. And I think that that is sort of totally worth it from that standpoint. And so I'm I'm not sorry. Good. Why did you start the newsletter? Well, you just kept managing. Yeah. I was wondering. It's like you just kept, you're like, sometimes people, so I will tell you, sometimes people ask me like, I'll tell people, like, you know, you got to talk to Hamish about Substack. It's great. And then I'll explain, like, you were like that Seinfeld, like, where George is explaining about how he gets women to date him by just, like, continually, like, being around. He's like, and then he gets in their head, like, Costanza. <laughs> I mean, like, that's, that's why. It was, like... Scarily accurate. <laughs> and you weren't, like, just like that. It, like, it wasn't pushy. You were just like, hey, let's talk about this. You know what to do. And just, like, if you're ever... And then at some point, my, you know, my publisher was like, hey, if this like, book come, you know, you're thinking about a third book, like, let's, you know... Like, why, why don't you think people seem to be having these these sub stacks, these newsletters? Like, why don't you start that? And I was like, okay, I'll do it. How do you fit it into your life? <laughs> it's, it takes a lot of time now. I mean, it was sort of, or this is like so, so evolved. But, you know, at the, and initially this felt, this was like a just a, like something I was doing on the side. I mean, I did not envision this being such a big part of my Right. Such a big part of my life, obviously. Yeah. And I I had just I was sort of writing and I would kind of write when I got time. And and then particularly with the pandemic, people's questions were there and there and there. And the sort of material was so easy to to see it. It felt like there was a there was a need. I mean, at this point, it's a lot more like structured. Sometimes I'll sort of look back at the early stuff. And it was just like, here are six things I'm thinking today. Or like, hey, how's everybody feeling? And I think that worked pretty well for for the time. I think now, you know, it's like a little bit more of a professional operation. But, you know, it's a lot of writing. I mean, basically we're putting out like like four things every week. And sort of three of them are pretty extensively written by, like three of them are just written by me. Mm-hmm. And then one of them is sort of produced by by the like small team of people that has helped me so awesome um i'm definitely please believe me i'm i don't want this to become like an ad for substack i'm not fishing for those sort of compliments or like or the praise or anything like that but i i do want to know it's such an important and interesting part of how you spend your professional life at the moment and it's touching a lot of people i do want to know what you get out of it like what is what is good about this so i find it a really like interesting and valuable way to reach people that combines 
the sort of ability to go deep with the immediacy. So there's this sort of like when you write a book, like you can get, you know, really deep into to whatever is the topic, but, you know, it takes a long time to produce a book and like, you know, I don't know, you have to like sell it to somebody. This is an opportunity to basically write what are effectively sort of coming close to like book chapters or sort of portions of chapters, but in response to things that are happening right now. And and I think that's a that's a very interesting I mean, it's like sort of regular journalism, um, but different than, you know, if I were were a journalist, I get to choose how I do that. And that means that sometimes I can say, like, today we're going to learn econometrics. And like, if you're a subscriber to this, I'm going to explain to you, like, what is an event study? And like, why is that a useful form of identification? And I think it's it's let me kind of do the sort of weird combination of like community building and statistics textbook that I think would be hard to find a home for elsewhere. And so it's just, and it's like, I mean, it's it's interesting to get to experiment. Um, and I think this is a really good platform for that kind of experimentation because you can just be like, we're going to try this for a little bit and then like, oh, it didn't work or it worked and we'll go do something in a sort of do it in a different way. Yeah, we, we talk about Substack a lot being, uh, in the case of paid newsletters, and yours does have a paid component, that the, pe- the people are not paying to get content from you. They're actually not paying for the statistics textbook. But they're paying for the relationship with the person they trust. And that means uh, they, if you're trying some things out, for example, and they you decide not to continue them, or if you make a mistake even, it's almost like that's a feature of the relationship. That's a feature of a trust relationship. It's not something that makes the thing worse because it improves this the sense of intimacy. It improves the sense of like conversation. Is that how you experience yeah, it? Totally. And I think there's there's pieces of this where I'll write something and like some of the feedback will come back like, that you missed a point here or like here is a like either you you really like you sort of missed the boat on this in this way or, you know, here is a, a follow up question. And this like lets us either sometimes say like, look, you know, there was a little bit of a mess here. Like, you know, we're sorry. And that I think is so important for building trust because people are like, OK, you know, this person isn't going to come back and, you know, they're going to listen to what I'm saying. And then we can also have sort of we can follow up. I mean, I, I get to write sort of whatever I want, which is like just like totally cool. Yeah, it's good. Um, but also, it's, you know, lets you sort of have effectively an ongoing conversation. So this post that I wrote about about sex sort of like started with, OK, with like a call in the newsletter, like, hey, let me know, like, like, here's here's a survey, like fill out the survey and tell us about your sex lives. And then like, we're going to come back and we're going to tell you what you said. And I think that sort of ongoing and then people for like the weeks between that. When I see people they'll be like, I'm really I really have to know what other people said about their sex. I'm like, oh, it's coming. It's coming back. Did you have any idea of what this thing could become when you started it? No idea. I mean, I thought I was going to be writing like, you know, every other week to 2,000 people about like studies on juice. (laughs) It was every time. It was was, like the only idea. I was like, juice is actually, people really have a lot of things to say about juice. Yeah. What's the hottest juice take? I don't know. You know, people are like, should you have it? Should you not have it? I feel like, you know, one of them. I got a bottle of pure green cold pressed juice. I bought it at the deli next door. It was $9. And I was like, what? I tried to go to the deli next door. They only took cash. I wasn't able to. Oh, well, like they let me pay with Apple Pay. It's ridiculous. Sorry, it must have been the way I looked at them. <laughs> so, the, like, the thing it has become is a phenomenon. There's tons of readers of this, lots of paying subscribers. I'll let you, you know, you choose how much you want to disclose about that. But why do you think it's become so big? And, like, why did you, why did you sort of not even contemplate that it might become what it's become? I, I mean, partly, like, I had... I never sort of thought about this form as like, you know, and and for many, for sort of a couple of years, at least for the first two years, more maybe more than that, I like 
we didn't have any paying subscribers. And sort of like this is a kind of a, it's just a free newsletter. It's just a free newsletter. And actually, most almost all the content at this point is still free. Yeah. The sort of old archive stuff is behind a paywall, and you know some of the Q and A is behind a paywall. But a lot of what we're putting out is free because I think that some of it is you know I want people to get this. Um, I want people to get this information. But you know I'm not sure. Like I'm not sure I had much of a concept. You, you guys have become of like become much bigger part of the media landscape in the last three years. You know, I feel like I was... I don't think I'd been even canceled once before when we first talked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now it's like we're like, we were like cancellation six. Yeah. It's like we're in, we're in just sharp competition. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm not sure, like, I don't know. I think I was like an early... I just it can never, would never have occurred to me that we would we would get here. Mm-hmm. And and actually what's, what's sort of interesting, I mean, this is like the economist hat on, but, you know, Jesse and I, my husband, and I talked a bunch about the sort of Substack business model. And he was like, you know, well, it's just like you send out these news. Like, where is the... Yeah, it's pretty simple. <laughs> it's pretty simple. And and I think it's really interesting. Like, you know, there's a sort of interesting HBS case in there about, like, you know, how you guys grew. Oh, you know, I don't want to get involved. I don't know. Maybe you want to get involved in that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll read it from afar and, and, yeah. and scratch my chin. And why did you decide... Well, I, I think partly this is through conversation with the Substack team. But that decision to actually introduce paid subscriptions and have people pay if they want to. Why did you do it? A big piece of it was to generate revenue so we could make it better. And I mean, better in terms of, you know, more professional, more like proofread. <laughs> um, you know, early, sort of, sort of much of the beginning of this uh, this newsletter, I was like doing everything, which is, of course, totally, totally reasonable, but I'm like actually a terrible speller. Um, and so there were, you know, people would occasionally be like, hey, there's a lot of typos in your, in your news. I'm like, yeah, okay. It's one of the features. The pandemic, it's a feature, you know. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, but then there sort of became a time when it was like large enough and and going out to enough people that it felt like, look, it would be very helpful to, you know, have this operation a, like a little bit more, like a, like a little bit more organized, a little bit more supported. And, you know, turning on paid subscriptions was an opportunity to do that and get some some support. As it has turned out, people have been like, incredibly generous. I'm very surprised at the level of paid subscriptions. You were correct about it. I was not when we started. And it has meant that we can do all kinds of interesting stuff that I that I didn't think that I would be able to do. How do you think this format interacts with academia? It's interesting because academia is very resistant to change. Um, so academia is not, you know, the the kind of gate, the gatekeepers of the academy, the sort of the way that you move up in the academy is very much like you're in a paper field or a book field or a conference proceeding field. Like we have a form in which we are delivering our content. And the uh, emailed newsletter is not one of the features of that form. And so I think in that sense, it's a, it's a little bit of a, like, a, it's an odd thing to do. It's sort of very much outside of kind of what people are doing. At the same time, I think there is an increasing sense, for maybe more so sort of post-pandemic, that like, you know, as an academy, we could be better communicating our ideas externally and that that would actually would have some value. And that, you know, only talking to each other is like interesting and, and you know, we sort of bring things to the world, but actually communicating out the sort of translation is a feature as well. And I think that that has meant that people are more interested in some of these ideas. Um, you know, clearly I'm sort of on the tail of how engaged ac- academia, academics are with uh, with Substack. But I, I think it's, you know, it's kind of like an interesting avenue into this um, for, for people in, in the academy because it lets you write in whatever form you want. And so, you know, if you want to write long things, you can. Yeah, and there's a lot of, lots of incredible papers that go widely unread because they're trapped in a journal and 
and you know people won't won't pick up. Yeah, I mean, I think look, this the size of influence is like the scale is totally different. You know, I like my most cited paper, which is like a pretty widely cited paper, has like twenty five hundred citations on Google Scholar, and like every time I send out a newsletter, like one hundred and seventy thousand people look at you know whatever it is, like you know we, and so it's just like that's that's a pretty different that's like a pretty different scale on which to be operating. What do your colleagues think of you? Given that, sorry, not you. Uh, it's, it's me. Tell me, tell me. No, really? It's okay. We went since, uh, who have you been talking to? <laughs> which, which ones? So, no, what do they make of this? That you have this media property that has become a phenomenon and that you're very active in. So people, like Brown has broadly been very, like the sort of university has been extremely supportive. You know, I think partly because actually some of this sort of external engagement is is sort of valuable for, uh, valuable for, for the university. I think for my colleagues, you know, partly this is a bit weird. Like, I think that sort of the predominant thing is just like an unusual thing to do with your time. And so I don't think people would say that's a waste of your time or like, I, what are you doing? Um, you know, earlier in my career, when I was just writing the books, there was some of the like, what are you doing? I think now they kind of see what I'm doing, but it seems like kind of hard or different or just, I don't know. I think sometimes people are just like, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Not that many academics in the world, although there are increasing numbers on Substack now, have these communities around them and sort of like the communities that show up particularly for them and are in discourse with them all the time. Yeah. No, it's a different, I mean, but I think, for you know, in my case, like I, like because of the books, I sort of had this profile that was like, already somewhat different than my academic profile. And so I think that that link is maybe a little easier to see than people who are sort of moved directly from kind of like writing, you know, historical tomes into mm. writing a newsletter. Now, I wonder if your answer to this might be something that you're not happy sharing <laughs> publicly. But given that the newsletter is such a success in terms of the size of the community that's gathered around it, and given that it's a financial success and that you get to write what you want and you seem to enjoy that style and that format, and it complements the books very well. Does it ever pull you away from academia? Does it ever make you think, maybe I could just do this and not that? There are things I would never want to give up about academia. I mean, there are many things. I, I love doing research and so on, but there are things inside the academy, in particular teaching, that I would have a very difficult time imagining giving up. You know, I really, I really like to be in the classroom. It really, like, sort of feeds me. And I think that it feeds me for some of the same reasons that actually the Substack does. It's like an opportunity to sort of have influences on a smaller scale, but maybe a deeper scale. And I teach a pretty hard class and I make my students do things that like they don't think that they can do. I had a student last year who was writing a paper and she came to talk to me and she was like, I think this is what's going on. And I was like, it's definitely not. I was like, that's not the explanation for what you're seeing. She was like, I totally think it is. And I was like, okay, you're just wrong. I'm telling you, like, I'm old, you know, I'm old. I'm your professor. I'm telling you, like, what your, what <laughs> your idea is not right. right yeah. Your idea is not right. Like, but, you know, that's not what's going on. But, like, here's how you might find find that out. And she was like, okay, I'm going to go find out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove that you're wrong. I was like, okay, that's great. And then she sort of got up to go and she was like, this is so much fun. <laughs> it's so much fun, you know, and that's like, so I would be, I don't think I would want to leave that. So you're kind of a famous person and you're in the classroom with all these students. What sort of effect does that have on the dynamic that you have with your students? Uh, so I'm kind of a famous person with uh, parents and my students are 22. <laughs> so for the most part, I'm not sure it has much effect. I did I do have a couple of students who have come in to tell me that their sisters like my book. Um, I guess they have older siblings, you know, children. <laughs> but you know, mostly the classroom is kind of the way, like, the classroom is the way it is. And I don't think that they care very much about whether I'm famous or not. 
Yeah. Yeah. In your own own TikTokified world. No, I don't let them. Oh, my gosh. I have like a lot of rules. Like you can't have a computer, like no computers in my classroom. Like you like I cold call people. Are you a hard ass teacher? No, I'm very nice. I think I'm nice. Mm, That's what the hard ass is saying. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm nice. My class is hard. I tell them it's going to be hard. It's hard. But I'm I'm I try not to uh, make people feel bad. And what if they, you know, I mean, they must have been watching the, the various uh, cancellations from all sides that you were getting during the pandemic and with these Atlantic pieces. Did you get feedback from them about it? Yeah, some. I mean, I think, you know, my students are generally pretty nice. And like the, the that environment is one in which like they're quite respectful. And so certainly like students, you know, would say like I like I did have students, you know, who I'm close to who were like, wow, I feel really bad that this is happening. Like, are you OK? But they don't go much beyond that. OK. Are you going to keep running books? Probably, you know, pro- probably. I mean, I have to think a little bit about what material is best delivered in what form. And I think that's sort of been an interesting part of of kind of being in the Substack space is to think about, OK, of the sort of public facing writing that that one could do, like, what are the things that I want to be doing in the newsletter? Like, is there are is there stuff that should go, you know, dust in books? Is there stuff that should go in other media? I've actually done much less of that. Lately, occasionally, there's things where it's like this, I want an even bigger or a slightly different audience for this. But I have found increasingly like the sort of Substack audiences and is there are opportunities to that spreads pretty widely. Are there Substack writers who you read that you, you think are worthy of more attention? Yeah. So I actually read a lot of Substack. There are a bunch of people that I really that I really like. So so um, I love Caro Chambers, who writes uh, What to Cook When You Don't Feel Like Cooking, which is like, you know, very overlapping with my audience. And I, I really like her. Do food. you collaborate? You should do some cross. We're doing actually we're working on something. Now we're going to have her do a uh, recipe in the newsletter awesome. and then sort of ask people for their own recipes. So, yeah. So she's I love her stuff. I, I just got some help from Kevin McGuire, who writes The New Fatherhood on the sex survey. And I really I, I like what he is building like, I think he is building a kind of different, demographically quite different community than than I'm building. But I think it really, like, people really connect there. And then the person I find the funniest on Substack is is Nellie Bowles, who writes the TGIF. For, All right, for, for Free, free press. press. Yeah, right. She's very funny. She's funny. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thanks for publishing on Substack. Thanks for your contributions, especially the contributions during the pandemic, even though it's really tough. I think that's valuable. The world got better because of it. Thank you, Hamish. I really appreciate the platform. You can find Emily Oster on Substack at parentdata.org. That's parentdata.org. See you next time. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com.